That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 219. It's titled, The Incredible Shrinking Stock Market. Last week, I got an email from Fred, and he shared some advice that has guided his investing for nearly 40 years. It's a quote by Carveth Reed, who was a late 19th and 20th century British philosopher and logician. And in his book titled Logic, Deductive and Inductive, chapter 22, his book was written in 1920, here's the phrase, it is better to be vaguely right than precisely wrong. Here's how I apply that phrase to to my investing. First, never bet the farm. Don't put all your eggs in one basket or any other idiom where we don't want our investment outcome dependent on predicting the future. And if we put too much in one bet or speculation, that could cause us to suffer from being precisely wrong rather than a more diversified approach, would be not sure exactly what's going to happen, cover the bases, and benefit from being vaguely right. We do that by observing what is happening and adjusting our allocation, our portfolio, accordingly. Here's some examples. Not holding any stocks at all. And holding lots of gold while waiting for a market crash. That's an example of betting on something happening and suffering if you're precisely wrong. If the stock market does well and gold falls, that's not the best way to invest. What about not holding any U.S. stocks because valuations are high? The U.S. stock market makes up 50, 52% of the global stock market. If we don't hold any stocks, we will suffer if we're precisely wrong. This would have occurred in the past year. Ned Davis Research points out, we have, as I record, there's about three more trading days left in the month of August. And it's on pace, the S&P 500, to measure U.S. large company stocks, to return 17.2% over the previous 12 months compared to the global stock market, ex-U.S., not including the U.S. So the MSCI All-Country World Index is on pace to return 4.2% over the prior 12 months. So that 13 percentage points difference is quite large. It's the second widest spread in nearly six years. And since ACWI data, the MSCI All-Country World Index data, began in 1987, 
Ned Davis Research reports there's been 10 cases of the S&P outperforming the Acqui XUS by at least 10 percentage points over a 12-month period. They screened out repeats where repeats within six months. So there's been 10 times, and every time the S&P 500 was higher a year later, and by an average of 16.8%. So the U.S. stock market has done better. We've talked some about that in earlier episodes, but here's an example where, and I own some U.S. stocks, but I've mentioned I'm underweight relative to the global stock market. I have less, at least in terms of public equities. I have real estate investment trust. I have private equity that's in the U.S., Master Limited Partnership. So I, so I have exposure, but I'm not overweight. And the concern, as I've discussed, has been the high valuations. But what if something's going on within the U.S. market that suggests that the U.S. stock market will continue to outperform the rest of the world? Is there something fun- fundamental, some big shift or change. Before we look at the additional implications of these trends, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you're looking for a central location to get the key information on the markets, the pulse of what's going on, I can't think of a better spot than Yahoo Finance. was just there, could see very quickly what happened today, how stocks sank to end their worst month of 2024. I could see the actual market declines for the U.S., Europe, Asia, what interest rates did, commodities, currencies. I could see holdings of mine that I recently viewed and key headlines from leading financial publications all in one place, one screen at Yahoo Finance without any annoying pop-ups. Plus, with Yahoo Finance, you can get a consolidated view of all your investments and retirement accounts, all in one place. The key to investing is access to quality information, and you can get that at Yahoo Finance. They've completely redesigned the website. It's comprehensive, it's high quality, and it can help you with your investing. So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. 
And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. There's a study I read this week that's really fascinating. It's by Renee M. Stoltz. He is the chair of Banking and Monetary Economics and director of the Dice Center for Research in Financial Economics at The Ohio State University. It's titled, The Shrinking Universe of Public Firms, Facts, Causes, and Consequences. Here's what he found. The number of companies, publicly listed companies in the U.S., is, was 4,900 in 1976. And by 1997, there were 7,000 listed companies in the U.S. And then it shrank. By 2016, only 3,600 listed companies. From 1976 to 2016, the U.S. population has gone from 219 million to 324 million. So the number of public listings has gone from 23 per person down to 11 per person. Now, this is a phenomena that's occurring globally, but it's even more prevalent in the U.S. In his model, in Stoltz's model, when he looked at population size, economic development, financial development, shareholder rights, the U.S. should have more than 5,000 more listed companies than it does today. So, just the sheer number of publicly traded companies is going down. Why is that? Well, one, there's just more mergers and acquisitions. But even more so, when you look at the makeup of publicly listed companies, there are less small companies. Here's how Stoltz puts it. He writes, one way to see the disappearance of small firms on exchanges is to look at the fraction of listed firms with assets of less than $100 million in 2015 dollars. In 1975, that was 61.5% of listed firms. In 1995, it was 43.9%. And by 2015, only 22.6% of firms had less than $100 million in assets. He goes on, it's perhaps not surprising, therefore, that the whole size distribution of listed firm has shifted so that the average market capitalization and median market capitalization accounting for inflation has increased by a factor of 10 from 1975 to 2015. There are less small companies. And as a result, and the average size is getting bigger and because they're getting bigger, they're also older. When the number of public listings peaked in 1997, the average publicly traded company was 12 years old. Now the average age is 20 years, so much older companies in a different stage of their life cycle. Now, why is that? Why are there less new companies less smaller companies, well, it comes down to there are, when we look at the, the accounting, 
the makeup of these companies across the board, both public and private, there is a lot more investment in what are known as intangible assets. Things such as research and development, brand, the organization, the employees, versus traditional tangible assets, property, plant, and equipment. And what's interesting about this is intangible assets typically are expensed. And by expenses, it it runs through the income statement on the balance sheet. Whereas if you go out and buy a building as a company, that's capitalized. It's it's considered an asset. So you, you buy it, it it your cash perhaps or its money is borrowed. It's a new asset. It doesn't it's not an expense that runs through the income statement. And so these companies that have more intangible assets, particularly smaller companies, they're expensing a lot of these intangibles, the employee cost, advertising, other things, other brand related developments. And so it reduces their earnings. Even though it's still an investment, it's different from a tangible asset. And so Stoltz points out that the fraction of firms with earnings losses in a given year has increased substantially. In 1975, 13% of firms had losses compared to 37% of firms in 2016. And by firms, we're talking about listed firms, publicly traded firms. And he continues, as a result, earnings have become more concentrated. In 2015, the top 200 firms by earnings had total earnings exceeding the total earnings of all public firms combined. In other words, the total earnings of the 3,281 firms that were not in the top 200 firms by earnings were negative. So most of the publicly traded companies had negative earnings. And it's this evolution of the the investment in these intangibles that is reducing their earnings. This week, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City is hosting their annual Jackson Hole Economic Policy Symposium, where the central bankers come, they present papers. Fortunately, we finally had a really good rainstorm yesterday, so all those Central bankers actually got to see the Tetons because the smoke has cleared. One of the papers presented was by Nicholas Cruzette and Janice Eberly. It's titled Understanding Weak Capital Investment, the Role of Market Concentration and Intangibles. Here's what they found. They write, we document that the rise of factors such as software, intellectual property, brand, and innovative business processes collectively known as intangible capital can explain much of the weakness in physical capital investment since 2000. Moreover, intangibles have distinct economic features compared to physical capital. For example, they are scalable, such as software, though some also have legal protections, patents or copyrights. These characteristics may have enabled the rise in industry concentration over the last two decades. There's a book that I've mentioned in the past, I believe, by Jonathan Haskell and Stan Westlake. It's called Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise 
of the intangible economy. And they talked about the scalability of intangible assets, intellectual property, that once you have that market leadership, if, if you're a Microsoft, for example, Google, huge scalabilities because it's just software. And in addition, they talk about spillover. The fact that it can be copied by others, even if there's a patent. Haskell and Westlake mentioned that once the Wright brothers invented the airplane, it could fly. They spent much of their time trying to defend their patents from others that wanted to incorporate or, or came up with sort of a different way to fly. If you have a, a physical plant, it's easy. Just lock the doors. People can't steal it. They can't use it. But if it's intangible assets, they can, they can tweak it. They can make copies of it. And then it becomes sort of this legal conundrum in terms of a legal battle over intellectual property. But think about that. What does that mean for private companies? You're, you're a small company. You've developed some intellectual property. You're growing. You don't need to borrow money necessarily to, to expand. You've raised venture capital funds. If you publicly list in the stock market, there's a couple of things. One, you have to be very detailed and share. There's disclosure laws. And that just, if you have some intellectual property, that gives competitors the opportunity to see what you're doing. So there's a disincentive from that aspect to publicly list, to do an initial public offering. In addition, because so much of your intangibles, you're expensing them, you're, you're, you don't have great earnings, probably have losses, and that's also not terribly receptive for the public stock market. And so there's, there is that disincentive, the spillover, the, the fact that competitors can see what you're doing because you, of all the disclosure laws. And even if you list, maybe you're not rewarded by the stock market because your earnings aren't very high because you're not capitalizing your investments. You're expensing them. They're running through the income statement. So because of this, we have less smaller companies on, in the public equity market that have listed on exchanges. And the smaller ones tend to have losses. And Stoltz writes, given the earnings accumulated by the most successful firms and the decrease in the number of young firms on exchanges, it is perhaps not surprising that U.S. public firms have been on net been returning equity to investors rather than raising new equity from them. In other words, the second big shift is share buybacks. And it's leading to a, a shrinking market. There is an article in the Financial Times that came out in the last week or so. It's called Global Equity Market Shrinks as Buybacks Surge. Repurchases outstrip new issuance by the most in more than two decades. Stoltz points out that the, the amount of repurchased shares in excess of newly issued shares 
is $3.6 trillion. That's since the peak in 1997. So from 1997 through 2015, $3.6 trillion of equity buybacks. Goldman Sachs forecasts the overall volume of U.S. buybacks will reach $1 trillion in 2018. And so the global equity market is shrinking in terms of the number of shares outstanding. Ned Davis Research took a look at this. From 1995 to, to the year 2000, the number of shares, actual shares outstanding, not number of listed companies, but the number of shares those listed companies have outstanding, went from 225,000 to 320,000. In fact, it, there's a very steep upward curve going back to the 1970s. But then, around sort of from 2004 through today, it kind of flatlined. And more recently, so it peaked at 330,000 shares in 2010, and now it's down to 310,000. But you can see the definite trend. Now, it's not a huge shrinkage by any means, but clearly we're in a period for decades where the number of shares outstanding was increasing. But since 2004, we've kind of been in this range, and it's actually been a gradual decline more recently. Now, Ned Davis points out in the piece that the stock market capitalization, so the total value of those shares compared to gross domestic product, the size of the U.S. economy, is 152%. We discussed that a few weeks ago. That compares very close to its peak at 158%. So even though the number of shares outstanding has declined, the value of each share has increased, the price. And so the total value of the stock market is still very high, and and that, that gets to the point. Now, one reason the stock market is valued so high is because profit margins have been so high. And again, that gets to the scalability. You have bigger and bigger companies. Average company size on the stock market is bigger. They're older and they're more profitable. And there's a a paper that was also delivered at the Jackson Hole Symposium by Alan B. Kruger. He's a Princeton economist. And the paper was titled, actually it was a lunch speak. He spoke at lunch. His remarks were were titled Reflections on Dwindling Worker Bargaining Power and Monetary Policy. He points out there is growing evidence supporting the fact that industry concentration, employer concentration, is suppressing wages. He quotes two different studies. And again, I will link to these papers in the show notes, or if you're a member of my free insider's guide, you have already gotten those links along with other valuable content I provide, usually things that, that weren't included in the podcast you can't get anywhere else. So sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com, that free weekly insider's guides. But he quotes two studies then, one by Ben Malek, Bergman, and Kim, And they found that wages are lower, more highly concentrated 
in the various labor markets. And then another study by Azar Marinescu and Steinbaum, a 2017 study, they found the same thing. So Kruger points out that both studies find surprisingly high degree of employer concentration. And this is especially for job openings in less populated areas. So companies, the, the term they use, and, and I, I don't remember this from economics class, is called monopsony. Monops, a monopsony, different from monopoly. A monopsony is, is where there's a buyer's market. You only have one buyer. In this case, we're talking about a concentration of bigger employers. And if you live in a rural town, there's only one big employer that that can compress wages. Lower wages means more profits are going to shareholders. Companies are getting more profitable, higher profit margins. Other things that contribute to that are are less unions. There's less collective bargaining today. In 1980, a quarter of the workforce were unionized. Today, in 2017, it's about 10.7%. There's more temp services, Kruger points out. Companies can, can, can hire a temp worker if they need it. He gives the example of nurses. If you have a nurse shortage, you need more nurses in your hospital. Instead of hiring a new nurse and paying higher wages, you use a temp service, pay those higher wages, and then you don't have to raise wages for all of your nurses. And so it tends to suppress the wages overall because not everyone's getting as high a wage, just those that happen to be working for temp services. Non-compete agreements. Points out a quarter of American workers are bound by non-compete restrictions on their current job or from a previous job. And and that, those non-competes limits the mobility, the ability to move elsewhere and perhaps get higher wages. That suppresses wages. A lot of franchisees, particularly in the fast food, have no poaching clauses where one franchise, a McDonald's, can't hire an employee from another franchise. Kruger points out that this, the overall company, the franchisor, isn't hurt by that, but it does limit the mobility of workers and their opportunities. And as a result, you have this monopsony It is suppressing wages. It's increasing profit margins and profitability. What then are the investment implications of this? Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Freeman said, when earnings are exceptionally high, they don't just keep booming. They can't break loose from economic gravity. High profit margins usually leads to additional competition, which tend to suppress profits. And the traditional pattern was new companies are formed. They do initial public offerings. There's new share issuance. And so the number of shares outstanding is increasing. And as a result, where as the typical pattern was corporate profit growth actually lagged the nominal growth in the economy. And that was the case in a link to some research by Ed Easterling at Crestmont Research. He has this table 
in the paper I linked to that shows that in the 1960s, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, and even in the 2000s, the average 10-year growth rate in nominal GDP was greater than earnings per share growth, but not in the 2010s. This year, this decade, nominal GDP growth has averaged 3.5%, while earnings per share growth has averaged 6.5%. That's a big shift. Earnings are growing faster than the economy. Why? Because share buybacks. There's less shares outstanding. There's greater concentration in older, more profitable firms because of their the scalability of, in, of intangibles, of intellectual property. And so what that means is corporate profits have been, been high. The growth has been high. It's been going faster than the economy. And that has allowed the U.S. stock market to perform very well. And so perhaps there will not be, the idea is that there'll be a return to the mean, that profit margins will, will go back to average, but perhaps not. Maybe there's, this big shift means that more and more concentration, greater profitability, and these high valuations stay high. Over the long term, the return for stocks is driven by the dividends, this other cash flow, and how that cash flows are growing over time, basically the corporate profit. So dividends plus corporate earnings. That equals the return of the stock market. And then the third leg is any adjustment in valuations. And I've, on Money for the Rest of Plus, have assumed a lower return for the stock market than in the U.S. versus non-U.S. But perhaps we'll need to rethink that if earnings in the U.S. will be higher. Now, this phenomenon of global buybacks is not just U.S. It's global. And in the Financial Times article mentions how global this phenomenon is around the world. But it's, it's just interesting when we talk about looking at What's happening now? Investing on the leading edge of the present. Trying to stay in line with trends and not taking big bets. The U.S. has outperformed the non-U.S. by 12 percentage points. It's not necessarily luck. Maybe there's something fundamental going on. And just a huge amount of buybacks has certainly been supportive of the stock market. And the huge amount of buybacks, certainly the tax cut had an impact, but the makeup of the stock market is different now. It's bigger, older companies that are more inclined to return equity to shareholders as opposed to invest in new projects. Much of the dynamism is occurring in in the private market. And as individual investors, not always easy for us to be able to participate in that. You have to be in many cases, an accredited investor meets certain income and net worth thresholds to be able to, to participate. But even then, there's been so much money raised in the private equity space that that has also pushed down those returns because companies don't need as much capital anymore. 
because they don't need to invest in property, plant, and equipment. It all, it's, it's intangibles. It's intellectual property. So those are some observation of what's going on. We'll see how it works out. This is, this is episode 219. You can get show notes, as I mentioned, at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation, not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. 